Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. There is a popular singer named Katy Perry that is loved by many young people around the world. She debuted as a singer in 2004 when she was 20 years old. After that, she continued to influence the pop music industry with seven of her songs hitting number one on the Billboard charts and setting a Guinness Book of World Records for having 100 million followers on Twitter. One of her songs titled, I Kissed a Girl, is about a lesbian relationship. She is not a lesbian herself, but because she recorded songs like this, she has become very popular among the gay and lesbian community around the world. In 2010, she earned a lot of attention by marrying the actor Russell Brand in India in a traditional Hindu wedding ceremony. However, she earned more attention when she ended up divorcing him after only 14 months of marriage. The reason why she gained so much attention for her marriage and her songs is because of her family background. Katy Perry is actually the daughter of a pastor. She believed in Jesus from a very young age, attended a Christian elementary school in Arizona, and sang in the choir of her father's church from the age of nine. Before she became a pop star, she debuted as a Christian singer in the year of 2001. As a pastor's daughter, she had a great amount of faith from a very young age and first sang as a Christian singer, but she gained so much attention from people around the world when she decided to become a pop star, singing about homosexuality, worldly things, and even getting married in a Hindu wedding. In addition, she publicly stated in an interview that she left the church and Christianity. She stated that she did not believe in heaven or in hell, or the fact that there is an, quote, old man sitting on a throne.
a daughter of a pastor, a Christian singer, once lived a life of faith, but left her faith and decided to live singing about worldly things. The world praised her for her decision, but many Christians were sad about her life's choices. There are many people that condemn her for her decisions. I, too, am not pleased with her life choices. I was even embarrassed at the fact that she went around stating that she was once a Christian. I wasn't pleased when she talked about her past. I thought to myself that she should have never stated that she was once a Christian and just lived her life the way she wanted. But after reading an article recently, I was embarrassed about the feelings that I had. The article was an interview that Katy Perry's father gave. The article was an interview with a newspaper company where her father stated that he does not agree with the choices she has made but still loves his daughter very much. He asked that people do not condemn her for her choices but asked that we pray to the Lord for her return to her faith. I was so embarrassed after reading that article. Her father's actions were so different from mine. My reaction was lacking in love and condemning her for her wrong choices. 
Katy Perry's father continues to pray that she returns to her life of faith, even knowing that all her actions and decisions are wrong. Can you guess what the difference is between me and her father? The difference is love. I did not have love for her. However, her father truly has love for his daughter. This is what created such a difference in our reactions. How do you think Jesus looks at her life? I'm positive that his reaction toward her decisions is quite different than mine. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has dinner with tax collectors and other sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat? with the tax collectors and sinners, and condemn Jesus for this. Jesus answers them in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus came to serve based on Mark chapter 10 verses 17 through 52. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. I'm wondering this morning, what do you think about yourself? When you look in the mirror, when you think about who you are, how is it that you think about the nature of your character? Or do you think of yourself as good enough and, and as smart enough? Well, here's another question. Don't want to confuse you too much. But have you even thought about what it is that shapes the way that you view yourself as to whether or not you are good enough and smart enough? We've talked about this before, but we have all kinds of cultural isms that shape the way that we view the world and others, ourselves, and even God. One of those is consumerism. Consumerism is a view in this world, in our country, that shapes us in so many ways that we don't even recognize. So consumerism, if you don't know, is that belief that says essentially that we are defined by those things which we consume. In fact, the things that we consume, that we buy and we use up, even in some way shape our identity and the way that we view ourselves. Well, maybe that's you this morning. I'm guessing it is in more ways than you know. But I believe there are a couple of dangers with consumerism. In fact, I was reading an article by Christianity Today where a couple of dangers were outlined by an author, Sky Jathani. And here's what she says about the dangers of consumerism. She says, first, consumerism reduces God from a deity to a commodity. And his value begins to be determined by how you view whether or not he has made good on the things that you have signed up with him for. And if he fails, then he's not really a good God anymore. Second way that we find consumerism affecting us spiritually is that it reduces Jesus from Lord to a label. Many of you have products that you buy and you identify with. So for instance, you'll hear me often talk about the fact that Apple products are superior. It's just true. And so what that really exposes though is there's an identity issue that I have created with Apple products, right? And maybe for you, it's the kind of car you drive, the neighborhood that you live in. But there are things which you consume that you have determined actually give you value in who you are. And friends, we live in a culture that has been defined that way. We associate with brands like Starbucks and other things, and that carries with it those things that we purchase. Uh, we have an expectation that our identity will flow out of those things. Now, here's the problem. See, Christianity can become a brand like Apple or Starbucks to express our identity. But in our culture, I have found that it no longer carries with it the expectation of obedience and allegiance. It's a brand. It's about what we get out of it, not what we have been called to suffer and sacrifice ourselves to. Make no mistake, we treat Jesus like a commodity, and that explains, I believe, why we look at our nation and the world around us and we see families falling apart. We find husbands abandoning wives and wives abandoning husbands. We find folks jumping from church to church and it's no big deal. And the reason it's not, the reason that folks can leave children and feel okay about it is because we have actually turned people and others and even God himself into a commodity. See, when the relationship isn't providing what we want, we just go and buy a new one. But we're back in the amazing true story of Jesus this morning in Mark's gospel, and we have good news to folks like us who struggle with consumerism. And see, here in Mark's gospel, we have seen some amazing things about Jesus that are completely true. He stopped storms. Uh, we find that he healed the sick. He even raised the dead. This is a man like no other that we have seen. He's pretty amazing. 
But this morning, Jesus is going to tell his disciples that the wisdom of the kingdom of God is going to actually turn the wisdom of this world upside down on its head. In other words, we are going to see this morning as we are confronted with this rich young ruler, a sense in which God is going to show us what wisdom looks like according to Christ as consumerism is trying to flip it back over this way, God says, no, you need to look at the world in a completely new way. And we're going to see that this morning. See, the rich, the rich, we are told here, are lacking, and the first must be last. Not the way that our world thinks. Consumerism is fighting against Christianity to flip the kingdom of God, and here the rich young ruler will expose that reality this morning. Now, here's our big idea. The big idea that we're going to be thinking about is this. Losing everything to gain Jesus frees us to serve others. And we're going to see that in a number of different ways. Uh, We see that first in verses 17 to 22. And here what we're going to find is, is that everything minus Jesus equals nothing. In verse 17, we're introduced to a man who Matthew describes as being young and rich, and Luke will tell us is also a ruler. But here, Mark buries the lead. He doesn't tell us about what this guy is like until the very end because he wants to to focus our attention into one aspect of this man's character. Now, at first glance, he looks a lot like other folks who have approached Jesus and fallen down before him and have seen really marvelous results. But here what we find is the man, as he falls before Jesus, says this, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think this man is in a good place as he starts out of the gate. He believes in an afterlife. And not only that, he doesn't take it lightly or for granted. He wants to know what must he do to inherit eternal life. He's not asking for a freebie. He says, I'm in. What do I need to do, achieve, accomplish, so that I can grasp that thing that we all want, which is eternal life? And Jesus responds in verses 18 to 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Sounds like a good word. See, Jesus, as he responds, uh, he tells him here really clearly, he says, okay, if you want to know about good, let me just begin not with your question, but with your statement and how you addressed me. And he says, you have called me good teacher. And now notice that he is very quick to take attention that has been placed on himself as a good teacher, and he moves it towards God. And he says, I want you to recognize who God is. God is Good. He is altogether unadulterated goodness. There is nothing evil or dark in him. He is good like no other. He is on a different realm good. He is not like other goods that you know. In fact, all that he does is good. By the way, we don't need to perceive God as being good or affirm his actions as being good for God to be good. God does not need to justify his actions before us as good for them to qualify as good. As soon as we start demanding that of God, we have not recognized God for being as good as he is. But here what we find is 
that as Jesus is demonstrating and discussing the goodness of God, I believe that there is a reason that he's doing this here. See, Jesus might be tipping the hat that he is the God-man because you know, if only God is good and he's called Jesus good, maybe he's recognized that he's God. I don't think that's necessarily what's going on here. See, I think it's probably more likely that Jesus has brought up the goodness of God because he's about to devastate this man's standard of good along with that of the view of the commandments. See, he is about to show this man that he is as good as he thinks he is, not as good as he needs to be. You can almost hear the excitement in this guy's voice when he responds to Jesus, right? Now, Jesus says, you got to keep the commandments, and he quickly spits back. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. What a good day. You've said, I've got to do this to inherit eternal life. I'm in. Here's the problem. His joy turns to sorrow in verses 21 to 22. Why? Because Jesus says, Looking at him and loving him, you still lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And once you've done that, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, this man went away sorrowful for, catch this, he had great possession. There's that buried lead. See, when it says that Jesus looking at him and loved him, after he had said that he had kept the law, I believe this gives us an indication about how Jesus received his claims. Commentator R.T. France speaks of this statement and Jesus' love for him in response to what he said, saying this, So far, this man has passed Jesus' careful scrutiny. And Jesus is duly impressed. Now, (laughs) let me just ask you this morning. How many of you feel confident that you would survive the careful scrutiny of Jesus? And leave feeling as though Jesus were going to be duly impressed. This is Jesus. And this man received a commendation from Jesus. And yet, despite the commendation, catch these devastating words. Jesus tells him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and come follow me. Now don't miss this devastating math for good people. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. That means that all of your good deeds and your accomplishments can't earn you treasure in heaven like eternal life. Take note that Jesus, he does not call all people to sell all of their possessions and to physically follow him to Jerusalem where he will be crucified as he does specifically for this man. But this young, successful man, a man who lived a good moral life and believed in the afterlife, he paid his taxes He gave to his synagogue, and all of the Jewish dads wanted their daughters to marry this guy. He's a good guy. But catch this. He's almost too good to be true. And yet Jesus says he's still not good enough for eternal life. And he forfeited his future for his fortune on that day. See, he's good, but he he loved money more than eternal life. Now, many things other than money can keep you from the one thing that you really need. That's to follow Jesus wholeheartedly with our lives. But here's the devastating reality of the gospel. Good people go to hell. That's the message of the Bible. There are many good people who do not receive eternal life or treasures in heaven. Why? It is because our scales are broken. See, Jesus just told us, when God is the standard of good... The fountain of every blessing through whom there is no good that comes apart from him. When that God is the standard of good, none of us are good enough. And even the best of us are more sinful than we know. See, apart from Jesus, we are shadier than our shadows. But God is more concerned with the idols of our hearts than the money in our banks. 
That's what God's worried about. He's not worried about how much money you have. He has the cattle on 10,000 hills. He owns all the cattle. He made them. He doesn't need our money. The problem that this man has is not that Jesus needed a loan. The problem is this man's heart was not committed to Jesus above all else. And he knew it and he calls him out. This man, almost too good to believe and yet not good enough. Now don't miss, if this math is bad for good people, catch what this devastating math is for the rest of us. If he's not good enough, what about you and what about me? What does that mean for us? See, when a lot of people come to church, I hear this a lot as a pastor when I meet new folks. They look around and they see everybody in their Sunday best, right? But you look just good to everybody else and you just assume that everything's so good and everybody's kind of the rich young ruler and I'm the one that's not the rich young ruler. I'm the one that doesn't really fit in here. And yet according to Jesus in the New Testament, this rich young ruler, uh, he is the man that most of us are not. We are mostly not as good as this rich young ruler, I don't think. I think he is superbly good. And not only that, when we look around and we think, oh, we see rich young rulers everywhere, we think they have some kind of spiritual advantage over us. And so maybe we don't belong here. But catch this, what Jesus has to say to us is that this rich young ruler actually has not a spiritual advantage, but a spiritual disadvantage. See, the reality is that most of us are a lot more like the disciples in this story who are seeing this rich young man and who are shocked that a man like that would not be received by Christ and would not have eternal life. They think he has an end. I mean, hasn't he been blessed by God? Isn't he the Psalm 1 man whom God seems to be blessing his way? And yet even he, even he, Jesus says, is not good enough. Those disciples, I believe, are watching and asking if this man can't make it, then what hope do we have? Maybe that's you when you see Christ. See, most of us would get queasy at the thought of having Jesus evaluate us according to the law. Who could stand? And I'm sure that's what's going on in the disciples' mind. If he can't pass the test, what's to come of us? Here's the beauty. Jesus, because he is the God-man, perceives their thoughts. And in verses 23 to 27, he actually confronts the disciples' questions before they ask it. And here Jesus says to them that their human condition This is the encouragement he gives. Your human condition, I know you're discouraged, but it's worse than you think. But God's plan for redemption, it's better than you can imagine. And we need to hear both of those messages. Your condition is worse than you think, but the help of redemption that's available to you is better than you can imagine. Now, here's how he does it. Second, notice he says in verses 23 to 27 that God can save those who can't possibly save themselves. God can save those who can't possibly save themselves. Look with me in verses 23 to 27. This is what it says. And Jesus, he looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now take note of how Jesus counsels these disciples' fears. Once again, he starts by amazing them with how bad the situation is. And if that's not bad enough, then he goes on to shock them with just how bad things are. See, he startles them with the upside-down wisdom of the kingdom of God, where financial advantage is spiritual disadvantage in the kingdom of God. Now, that amazed his disciples. But in verse 25, 
Notice that they are exceedingly astonished when Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've heard this preached, then you've heard pastors before say something to the effect of, so the eye of a needle was this gate in Palestine that was extremely inconvenient to have someone pass a camel through because it was low and they would have to take all the stuff off the camel's back and then he would have to sort of crawl through and then they would have to load up their possessions on it. And so it was just really inconvenient. Now, I think that's wrong for a couple of reasons. For one, what you might find if you were to do research is that there's actually no historical evidence anywhere that there was ever a gate in Palestine called the Eye of a Needle. That's one reason why I think it's just clear that it's not speaking of just a gate that was inconvenient to enter. Now, the second reason really is just right here in the text. As you read, you'll notice that what Jesus is saying here is, hey, it's just really difficult for somebody rich to get saved. That's not what he says, is it? No, he says, it's impossible. Now, I know when you're thinking through this, you're thinking, well, I don't know if it's really impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Camel was the biggest animal that they had in Palestine. In other areas where rabbis had bigger animals like elephants, they would say it's harder for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. But here it's a camel. Why? Because it is impossible. It is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that's why I believe we find the disciples here crying out, then who can be saved, right? See, Jesus leads them to despairing of their own efforts to save themselves. And only when we despair of ourselves are we really ready for hope that only God can provide, which is what Jesus does in verses 27. You notice right after he says it's impossible, he says, but. But God, Ephesians 4, but here we have, but not with God, or is this impossible, right? Because he says, for all things are possible with God. Now don't miss this. The disciples assumed that this moral rich man had a leg up, but Jesus says he has a leg that's shackled down by his wealth. It's a warning. Earthly advantages, they can equal spiritual disadvantages. It's also sinful for a man not to make every effort, just to have a balanced view, to provide for his family. So the Bible says that a man that doesn't provide for his family is sinning. So of course the Bible's not saying that you don't need to provide for your family, that it's bad to invest or to save money, or to make money. That's not what he's talking about. Wealth isn't sinful. It's dangerous. So we need to be careful about wealth and what our hearts can do with it. And it's not the money as much as it is what our hearts do with the money. See, when money controls the direction of our lives more than Jesus does, money has become the Lord of our lives. And Jesus doesn't tell us to give to the church because, again, he wants to get the money out of our wallets or out of our banks. He does it so that he can get the idols out of our hearts. A great way To loosen our grip on our greed is to be a generous person. So there are a couple of ways that we can think about this that we'll get to in a minute. But first, we need to see here clearly that Jesus says there is a reason that you need to give. He says we should should give and understand that money is dangerous. And because of that, what I would encourage us to do is to make sure that we are actually praying for those who have more financially than us. That that gift would not become a God in their lives? Have you thought of praying for them in that way? See, the gospel reorients the way that we think about money. So think about it. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little greedy man who found Jesus and became generous. That's what the gospel does to our hearts. Now, four thoughts quickly on 
the way that you should think about giving. One is prioritize giving to the local church. You know, giving to nonprofits has gone up. Giving to the local church has gone way down, and that's across the board. If local churches go away, parachurch organizations die. Second, budget how much you plan to give month by month. Put it as part of your budget. This is how much we plan to give. And give, and try not to get behind. If you get behind, you tend not to give. Third, don't give out of guilt. But even when you feel like you need to give because you're feeling guilty about not giving, give anyway, right? Like work on your motives, but don't be disobedient until your motives catch up to your faithfulness. And fourth, start young. Uh, It gets harder when you're older and you have more responsibilities, not easier. Go ahead and train yourself now to be giving faithfully to gospel work to the glory of God. But here's the more important message here, though. I don't think this text is just about money. God's calculations, they work differently than man's. God only saved those who can't possibly save themselves. That's the message that we need to see here. See, nothing is impossible with God. And what good news for spiritually bankrupt people, right? It's not that Jesus has come for those who can kind of like subsidize their salvation. No, Jesus came for those who have nothing to put into their salvation. What a glorious God we serve. Now, I'm not good enough to save myself, but God is great enough to save me. The one thing that this man lacked was Jesus. And when the hope of our souls is tied to something other than Jesus, we will drift towards either arrogance or despair. Maybe you've experienced those emotions in the same day. Isn't that striking? Have you ever thought about that in your human heart? How in the same day, maybe even the same hour, there you can go from being proud and boasting in something that you can do to pitying yourself and despairing over your inability. Did you know that both of those, I believe, often are tied to a grander reality and the same reality, which is that we have not anchored our value and identity in Christ. Boasting and pity comes from a heart that looks to ourselves and not Christ. Why? Well, because third, in verses 28 to 30, we see this. Nothing plus Jesus equals everything and then some. Now, I love this. We haven't heard from Peter, and I always love to hear from Peter. Because I find that when he speaks, Jesus is able to make things more clear. And he says things most of us are thinking but wouldn't say out loud. But you can hear the wheels turning in Peter's head as he does the math and tells Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. Now, now this isn't to say that Peter didn't leave his house in Capernaum. He still had a house, right? But they have left so many things, relationally and otherwise, to follow Jesus. And he will one day literally take up his cross for Christ. And Jesus responds to Peter in verses 29 to 31. And look how he responds to Peter this time. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life I mean, what a glorious promise here see here jesus promises a couple of amazing things first what we find here that jesus says christians those who have put their faith in jesus and have followed him can expect a dramatic return on everything that we give towards the kingdom. That's our hope. And just think about that. For believers, good doesn't merely triumph over evil. Jesus says it exceeds it by a hundred times. Like, isn't that great math for us? Like, you sacrifice this, and God says, you're getting a hundred times that back. Do you know what percentage back that is? 10,000 times back. 
See, the promise that we've been given, we need to put our confidence in it. And if we put our confidence in it, our lives will be reshaped and reoriented around Jesus in new and profound ways. I mean, what a promise that Jesus gives to us. 10,000% return. And catch this, he doesn't isolate it to money. It's not just the money that you invest in the kingdom, that's true. But it's also those things which you have to sacrifice when you lose a relationship. He says, those who have lost family, it will be returned to you 10,000 times. Now, here's the deal. I don't know how God does that. But here's what I do know. My God is greater than my ability to imagine. And I trust him in that, that he's going to repay and restore all that has been lost. And not only that, what we know from Joel 2, that God even promises this, if you want to take it one deeper. He says that even those things that you lose as those who are the people of God, when you sin, those losses will be restored as well. You see that? If that's, if that's true for the people of God in Israel, how much more for those who have the blood of Christ on them? See, nothing plus Jesus equals everything and then some. And there's no way to understand what that looks like in the face of some of life's horrific tragedies. But here's what we can bank on. What is gained will far outweigh what is lost. That's a promise straight from Christ himself. But we see a second thing in these verses. Verse 31 says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I think I've told some of you before, I love explaining this text to my five-year-old, Jack. We were in bed one night and we were talking and he was like, daddy, now that we're away from the brothers, you can be honest with me, who do you love most? And so I like to be clever with Jack. He's fun to think with. And I said, well, you know, Jesus said, the first will be last and the last shall be first. So I love you the last most. And he giggled and he said, no, that's not right. And I had to look it up and show him. He goes, oh, well, that doesn't seem right. Okay. And so he said, okay, you love me the last most. And that's kind of our thing. We'll get in bed sometimes and say, hey, daddy, who do you love the least? And I'm like, well, you, of course. And he giggles like, I know. So one day his uh, little brother Johnny's in the room. He comes in and he says, hey, dad, who do you love most? And Jack's right there. And I said, uh, well, uh, I love you the most. And then Jack goes, ha, ha, I knew it. I knew he loved you the most. <laughs> and John's like, I don't get it. <laughs> but what does Jesus mean here, right? What does he mean when he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Well, it might mean that many of those who seem to be the first in this life, like this rich young ruler, might be last in the life to come or worse. Of course, that is true generally. We find that. Uh, there are many in this world that might seem to be first but will be last, but maybe not even last and worse in the kingdom that is to come. But it could also be a specific warning to Peter himself. Peter who is consistently pushing himself forward, wanting to make booze for the three at the transfiguration. You know, wanting to be the one that Jesus talks to, the one that leads out, that speaks first. He's very reactionary and he wants to lead. And so maybe it's that Jesus is actually speaking to Peter. You know, just remember Peter. Many of the first shall be last, and many of the last shall be first. So think about the way that you're living. But here what we find is, is that in the midst of this, there are two brothers. In verse 34 to 35, James and John, the inner circle of Jesus. They seem, when they hear Jesus to say this, to taste blood in the water like a shark, Right? Because then they, in 35 to 45, start fighting with each other and the other disciples. They say, hey, Jesus, can, can we be on your left and right in the seats of honor? We're the ones that he always prefers. And if Peter is out, these two are calling shotgun on the seats of honor. 
And they want to sit on his left and right in glory. I think that the, the seat that they want in glory is on the throne in Israel where Jesus will reign. And Jesus says to them, you don't even understand what you're asking because my glory will be made known at the cross. See, that's the cup that he will, he says that he will have to drink in verses 35 to 45. And that's the baptism that he must be baptized in. It is the cross. And the seats to the left and right of Christ, they have already been prepared for someone else. Two other criminals that will hang side beside Jesus Christ himself. And the other disciples, they erupt because they didn't call dibs on the good seats first. And they don't understand what it is that it means to follow Jesus and what they've been called to. And Jesus explains this. He says, they want the seats of power, but in Jesus' kingdom, the good seats go to those who lay down their lives for others as servants. That's what it looks like to be a leader amongst the people of God, is laying down, sacrificing your life for others. The first must be last in God's upside-down kingdom. But Jesus, here, he calls us all to a life of self-sacrifice. Because many of the first shall be last. Now, I'm just curious, as you're thinking about that, and you're to gaze in your mirror today and say, who am I? Would you say that your life is characterized by self-sacrifice? And not because you're such a good person innately in and of yourself, but because of who Jesus is and who he is for you. Because you have the Holy Spirit within you. Is he making you more self-sacrificial in the way that you live before others? Because Jesus says many of the first shall be last and many of the last shall be first. And how does that look in your life today? Are you looking to serve others? And when you think about the job you want, do you want the job that like makes you look best, makes you feel best, or the one that's needed, that most fully feels like Jesus laying down himself for you and me? I'm reminded of uh, the night as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room discourse in John 13. He begins before he tells them how to love one another by showing them how to love one another and he washes the disciples' feet. A very difficult, gross job back then. A lowly job. And I always think, couldn't somebody else like wash feet and Jesus could be doing more important stuff like raising people from the dead or something? And yet Jesus here is demonstrating for them that he is willing to do the lowly job because that's what it looks like to be godlike, to serve others, to stoop down to help those who can't help themselves. That's what people who love God do. Is that you today? Are you serving in that way? Or do you expect others to meet your needs? See, that's not what Jesus did. He didn't come for what he can get, but to give to those who need it. But there's a the last thing that we see here, and that's this, that Jesus gave everything for us. See, not only did Jesus wash our feet, but he gave everything for us, literally. Now, verses 32 to 35 tell us explicitly how Jesus will enter Jerusalem and be handed over to the Jews who will hand him over to the Gentiles to be killed. Jesus, think about this, literally left the courts of heaven, but where he had the perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit eternally. There was nothing lacking relationally for Jesus. There was nothing lacking in a sense of what he needed. He had every good that he needed to be satisfied, infinitely so, and yet this one, the Son of God, left the courts of heaven to condescend and come down to earth, a broken world filled with darkness, so depraved that we were hopeless left to ourselves, so that he might save you and me. And catch this, Jesus gave everything for us. You'll notice in verse 45, if you scroll down there, that he talks about the cross again, explaining what Jesus did as the Son of Man. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. 
Jesus came to give his life for you and me. He came to ransom himself for us. This word for ransom is interesting. It gives us one picture of the atonement where Jesus died for us. Paul uses a similar word elsewhere. It talks of redemption from sin through the death of Christ. In other Greek, it speaks of a, a payment to secure release of a captive or a slave. And we were ransomed from sin, Christ says here. And this is related to that view of Jesus who has ransomed us from our sin debt. He is, there's a more important one though that it's tied to, and that is that Jesus came and died in our places. He died on the cross for us, for you and for me. And and catch this, this is what we find at the cross, something glorious. It's what theologians of the past like Martin Luther have called the sweet exchange. Uh, What happened in the cross? Jesus came and he took all of our sins and our debts and the penalty of sin and the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself in his flesh for you and me. He took on our debt. Uh, But that's not all he did. See, there's a double cure. The second thing that he did in that sweet exchange is he also not only took our sin debt, but he actually gave you and me his righteousness and goodness. You're coming before Jesus, and he says, well, you got kind of two options. I mean, you could settle for your goodness with me, and we can decide if that's good enough to get eternal life. Or you can receive the very righteousness of God in Christ. My goodness, my goodness, whereby I obeyed God in every single way. I never disobeyed God. I never had a sinful thought. I loved him, perfectly did his will, even to the point of laying down my life on the cross where he then raised me up from the dead to declare that he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What an exchange. Brothers and sisters, that's what Christ did for us. He gave us his goodness on the cross if you will repent and believe and put your faith in him. Just think about it. This rich man wouldn't give up his earthly riches for Jesus, but Jesus left heavenly riches to give you and me eternal life. Wouldn't we be fools to give up on such goodness from Christ? Don't be that person today. Don't listen to the wisdom of the world. Listen to the wisdom that is from heaven in Jesus Christ. So Christian, let me just ask you, As you consider what Christ has done for you, doesn't that just awaken your heart and cause you to want to serve others? Think about it. We aren't tied down to our riches and our possessions and our accolades and our trophies from second grade soccer. Like, those aren't the things that we have to live for anymore. We actually can live for the God who sent his son to pay it all. And because of him, we have an inheritance that nothing with this world can match. Doesn't that cause you to want to serve? I don't have to earn anything. I've been given more than I can imagine. I am free to serve. I don't have to clutch to this world anymore. I don't have to have this white-knuckled grip because Jesus has freed me up in the gospel. And if you're a non-Christian, you have not put your faith, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, you have not turned from living to sin to listening to him, if you have not turned to living for him, today is the day. Put your faith in Christ. He will make you new. Turn from living for the treasures that you can't keep. When you die, you can't take them with you. Uh, turn from those to heavenly treasure which promises eternal life in Christ. There's no better deal. Now, if that's you and you need to come to Christ today, please talk to me after the service. I would love nothing more to sh- than to share with you how you can put your faith in Christ and be made new. Talk to another Christian here. Uh, We have lots of Christians who would love nothing more than to share Christ with you and lead you to Christ. Don't walk away like this rich young ruler, though, who was sorrowful 
and maybe even more sorrowful at death. Let's pray. The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Youngin Winston, and you are listening to our program, The Goodness of the Gospel. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. In the last program, we were recapping what we have learned throughout this program. Yes, we talked about how God started His work of salvation since the creation of the universe, what sin is, and through sin, how death came into the world. Before we hear the goodness, we have to know about the sadness. So we discuss about sin and death. Today we will talk about what comes after, how the news of a death and sin change to the news of a righteousness. And life. Yes, we'll talk about how sin and death were changed to justice and life. We humans want to see results fast in whatever way, and that makes us wonder: If God prepared the way to save us from everlasting death, then why didn't He demolish the second death and just take His people to the new Jerusalem? I know, right? I also thought it would be so nice. If God just said, "I have forgiven all your sins and let us go to heaven," skipping this intermediate step of living on this earth, 
Doesn't it sound nice? But we found an answer to this question. It is because God is a righteous God, and because God is righteous, He does not skip what is necessary and corrects any mistakes. And for this reason, we thought about what righteous is. Yes, righteous. Justice is to punish the evil and to reward the good. We discussed previously if God does not judge sin, then God is not the righteous God. That is why the God of justice has to judge sin to accomplish His righteousness. Yes, that is justice. Through one man, sin and death entered the world. Man was tempted by a serpent and lost his life, the kingdom that was given by God, and the status as God's child. If someone did not restore this state by a lawful process, we cannot help but to die. That is why God had to go through all the necessary process. Someone had to restore back to zero what became negative through sin by adding a positive. That is why we needed kinsman redeemer. This kinsman redeemer in Hebrew, Goel, has to be a relative, an able man who can revenge our enemy and pay for death. Someone with the ability to restore us back to our original status from the position of a slave. And most of all, he had to have a willing heart to be a goel. Yes, our relative, kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ came for that reason. Jesus, who is God himself, came in the form of a creature to be our relative. And by fully obeying the word of God, he accomplished perfect righteousness, which restored us back to the original state, canceling out the sin that entered first through Adam. I am reminded of the Romans 5:18 and 19. Could you read it? Sure. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. These verses give clear explanation of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us from sin, proved his righteousness by resisting all the temptations in midst of his weary, hungry condition in the desert, whereas the first man failed his temptation where everything was abundant for him. However, this is not all. Jesus not only lived as the second Adam righteously, but it also had other symbolic meanings. Do you remember any? First, just as John the Baptist said, Jesus lived as a Lamb of God, the Passover sacrifice. Right, Jesus became the Passover Lamb of God. But not only that, he became the unleavened Passover bread and the high priest who offered sacrifices to himself. The one man had so many tasks, and once again I realized the Bible is the book about Jesus. That's right. 
We also talked about why Jesus, the second Adam, the righteous man who was without sin and the Lamb of God, resurrected from death on the cross. This too was about justice. Justice is about being fair. It is fair to God's law that a sinner must die. But it is not fair for someone sinless to die. Yes, it's only right for Adam who committed sin to die, but Jesus, who was without sin and with perfect righteousness, dying was contrary to God's justice. And in order for God to accomplish his justice, he brought Jesus back to life. I have never thought about it that way before, and I was amazed when I heard your explanation. It was not fair. For the righteous Jesus to die, it was not just. It's probably because we don't fully understand what justice is. Just as all the descendants of Adam were destined to die, the descendants of the second man, Jesus Christ, were moved from death to life. This is what the Bible says of being born again. It's the concept of being born again. Yes. Just as we are born as the descendants of Adam in reality, we ought to be born as the descendants of Jesus Christ. It is more than symbolic meaning. Many people think being born again is just a symbolic concept. However, this has to take place in reality. It's not a concept, but a real occurrence. Just as we are born in the flesh in reality, We have to be born again in the Holy Spirit. We must start living as born-again Christians. Just as we were born as the descendants of the first man Adam and live in sin, in reality, we have to actually live a righteous life through being born again in Christ. We are no longer slaves of sin who cannot help but to sin. We are servants of Christ who have the choice not to commit sin. Let us remember this fact. When we were the descendants of Adam, we had no choice but to follow what sin told us to do. We had no ability to deny sin because we were the slaves of it. That's what being a slave is. But now that we are born again through Christ, we have the ability to reject when the temptation of sin comes, just as Jesus rejected sin. Therefore, We can discern if we are truly born-again Christians by examining our actions when we are tempted by sin. I think we should train ourselves to follow the Holy Spirit rather than our physical lust. When we are faced with the temptation of sin, as we are talking about the Holy Spirit, I remember discussing about how it is only through the Holy Spirit that we are born again in Christ. Yes, in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in the book of John, we learn that only through being born again with water and the Holy Spirit can an individual see the kingdom of God. Also, in Genesis chapter 1, we can see that the Holy Spirit was present when God first created the universe. Genesis 1-2 says, God's Spirit hovered over the waters. The Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for hover 
is rakaf. It has a meaning of embracing an egg. Imagine this. Currently the earth is covered with water. It's in the water. And the Holy Spirit is embracing the earth like an egg. A new life is born from an egg when it is embraced and creation begins. Does this picture depict Jesus' baptism? That is right. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit was upon him in a form of a dove. It was the moment when God began his creation. As the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus at his baptism, he will also embrace us to give us new life. It is another biblical evidence that confirms that the birth of the Holy Spirit is a real. Right. We who are born again in Christ start to live on this earth according to the kingdom of God, the reign of God. It is to live the life of heaven. We are to prepare on this earth to go to New Jerusalem where we will have eternal fellowship with God. I believe it is our job to look internal things belong to heaven rather than giving our heart to perishable things belonging to the world. Amen. The Bible also tells us to live like that. We are no longer those who are bound by the world, but we are to live belonging to heaven. It means we have to live according to God's values rather than earthly values. From the time we start following the word of God on this earth, God's kingdom will come upon us and we will begin to live the life of heaven. The life of heaven does not begin in heaven, but on this earth, the moment when we receive Jesus and are born again. I hope that we all can start living the life of heaven on this earth. Now should we go over what we had talked about before, about the judgment and New Jerusalem? Sure. We shared that it is not biblical to think that Satan is the king of hell and God is the king of heaven. Hell is not Satan's kingdom, but it is a place where Satan and his followers, those who opposed God, will be judged. The idea that the eternal kingdom is divided into a kingdom of God and a kingdom of Satan was derived from a worldly view of confrontation between good and evil. But this idea came from not fully understanding God's character. God surely punishes the evil. The evil will fully vanish. If the evil still exists, then heaven can no longer be heaven. God allows evil to exist for a time being until God's perfect kingdom comes. I think I also had the same idea that the eternal world is a divide into two structures of good and evil. But after listening, I realize it is right for evil to vanish when God reigns in his kingdom. That's a very important point. God is only allowing evil for some time until his purpose is achieved. He does not accept evil. He is just being patient. But when the time comes, when God says, Now stop! then evil can no longer exist and will be judged. There will be no more temptation for God's people. Then wouldn't that place be true heaven? 
That's why we read from Revelation chapter 21 verses 2 through 5 last time to examine the New Jerusalem. Yes, I remember. There will be no more tears, sorrow, crying, or pain. God will restore all things by renewing them and won't let tears, sorrow, crying, or pain happen again. It's because God obtained all the people He wanted. His purpose of the creation will be complete. We will enter the New Jerusalem and see the tree God wanted to give to us and will be allowed to eat the fruit from it. Do you know what tree the fruit is from? Wouldn't it be the tree of life? I feel like we are back to the starting point. Everything is restored back to the beginning. That's right. Revelation 22.2 says in New Jerusalem, there will be a tree of life at the right and left, and they will bear 12 fruits. There will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but only the tree of life. The glorious history of salvation ends when God gives us the fruit from the tree of life, which he wanted us to choose for ourselves, the life God first wanted to give us. After, people of God will live forever in fellowship with the God of Trinity in worship and praise, filled with joy and love. It is the gospel and the goodness to know such a kingdom exist and that we can enter in. Right. It is the God of Trinity who planned and enabled everything. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is their perfect masterpiece. I am reminded that God is worthy of all the praise and worship. Amen. I hope that through our program, you will be able to define the gospel. So if that anyone asks you what the gospel is, you may be able to explain it from the beginning to the restoration. If that person wants to receive this eternal life, tell them that now is the time to be born again through Jesus Christ, that you urge them to get a new life, that God chose that person to be his children. I think I can be more accurate in sharing and explaining the gospel to others. I learn a lot through the, this program. I wish everyone can live as born-again Christians. Yes, until we meet the Lord, I hope that we will live as God's children on this earth. Thank you for everyone who has been listening to our program, The Goodness of the Gospel. This ends our program here today, and I believe God, who began the good work in you, will fulfill the day of Christ. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Goodbye.
body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance tells the Pharisees who condemned the tax collectors, sinners, and even Jesus for having dinner with them that they shall learn the meaning of showing compassion and not offering sacrifices. I learned so much from what Jesus said to the people who condemned others without love. What God wants from us is compassion for others, not offering sacrifices. Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew come from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, 
and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Giving sacrifice and burnt offerings is a formality. It is a part of giving service and a part of life of faith. People offer sacrifices because they are told to, and they give burnt offerings because they are supposed to. However, offering sacrifices and burnt offerings was not what God wanted. God wanted them to get to know Him and have a relationship with Him by giving sacrifices and burnt offerings. Offering sacrifices and burnt offerings was an act that people made for their sins. People in Israel may have believed that they did all they needed to by giving these sacrifices and burnt offerings. They may have believed that they were forgiven for their sins through these acts and they were made righteous. But there is something that the Israelites were not able to understand. They were not forgiven for their sins and made righteous through the sacrifices and burnt offerings. It was only possible by God and His love for them that they were able to be forgiven for their sins and made righteous. The reason why Jesus came into this world was love. This is the reason why He came as an offering and He made the ultimate sacrifice. But sometimes we have the wrong idea. We think that we have the right just because Jesus gave up His life. The reason why God sent His only Son to us is so that we will know the love that He has for us. When some people condemned Katy Perry for her life decisions, her father did not condemn her for her choices but prayed for her soul. This is because he loved his daughter very much. When we all begin to see people around us with the love of Jesus Christ, we will end up praying that those people will return to Jesus. Just like how we, as sinners, were forgiven for our sins and made righteous, we must love other sinners and pray they turn to Jesus. This is what Jesus wanted us to learn when he said that he desires compassion, not sacrifice. I hope that all of us have the love of Jesus Christ inside us. I hope that love will flow out of us and spread to others. I want to leave you all with 1 John chapter 4, verses 19-21. through 21. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. And the one who loves God should love his brother also. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. A new season for Unity in Christ will begin next week with another host, Brian Winston. I will be returning soon with a new program in the future. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see all of you again soon. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, He's waiting and watching, 
清风。